podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. This episode of Red Inca is a look at England's last World Cup with someone who was very much involved. My name is Kate Cross and I am a cricketer and part-time podcaster. We talk about England's bizarre campaign, three straight losses, five consecutive wins, and then meeting Australia in the final. But also scheduling, confidence, close games, and what being in a World Cup does to you emotionally. I want to talk to you about the World Cup because I think it was a really good tournament and I think that, especially people in the UK, I think a lot of them were asleep during it because unfortunately New Zealand just doesn't work as a time zone. I've tried to get them to move it, but they won't. And I think England were the most interesting team in the World Cup. Australia wasn't interesting because they always do the same thing these days. And there was a few other good stories. Going into the World Cup though, I remember I was talking to, I must be the bowling coach, Tim McDonald beforehand. Yeah. Felt like your team was pretty confident. Yeah, I think you have to be t- like confident going into a World Cup because otherwise, what's the point of you getting on the plane in the first place? So, yeah, we were. And I think there was something really special around, you know, we, when we were talking to the press, we were talking about defending our trophy and defending our title. And I think there was something quite, I guess, inspirational and motivating about that. So, yeah, of course, we were confident going into it. And I also think, well, I'm talking like I've got loads of World Cup experience. I don't. That was my first World Cup. <laughs> but you play a team on a day at a different ground, different conditions. So it, it literally could be anyone's game when you mm. turn up. And I think you get more of that in a World Cup than you do if you're playing a five-match test series against a team because, you know, you're working each other out and whatnot. So, yeah, I think we, we were super confident going into it. And that changed pretty quickly from, I think, three games in with that confidence, like, plummeted pretty much. Well, let's talk about the first game. You play against Australia, which, considering you're the reigning champs, is Quite a way to start any women's tournament these days. Haynes goes nuts. They pass 300. You get slapped around everywhere. England gets slapped around, but you personally get slapped around. What happens at the end of that game? Do you write it off? Are you trying to learn stuff from it? What's the mood like after losing to Australia? I mean, we came from a series where we'd lost a lot to Australia. So that was also something that we had to contend with. We hadn't had a good ashes whatsoever Well, we actually, it's unfair to say that because we didn't really get a chance to start the T20s in the Ashes. We had a good test match. We should have won it. We didn't win it. And then we kind of petered away in the ODIs. So in terms of prep for an ODI World Cup, not great. And then you show up and you're playing against the same team again. So I actually think if you you were to review that game again, and we spoke about this in the dressing room afterwards, we actually thought we didn't bowl well. We didn't bowl our best because we've, from our standards, we bowled pretty well over the last 18 months leading into that tournament. And we weren't up to that standard. But it was a great game of cricket. We felt like we really pushed Australia and Nat at the time scored one of the best hundreds that I've seen her play. Obviously that changed when I saw her get that hundred in in the final against Australia again. But it was a game that had everything it had. You know, it was high scoring, there was good bits of fielding, there was good spells of bowling. They took on Sophie Eccleston, which not many teams do, Mm. and come off successfully, which I think was a big part of just a bit a big part of us as a team not bowling well. If Sophie's bowling well, we generally we're going well through that middle over so we weren't distraught coming out of that game we we were gutted that we didn't get over the line 
I remember Jess Jonathan bowling that brilliant last over where she was coming around the wicket. Um, sorry, she came over the wicket to the right-handers, didn't she? And she kind of took that catch off Catherine Brunt, which was a brilliant reaction catch. And just little things, little margins like that. If they go your way, then, you know, you could be coming off that game with a win under the belt and suddenly you've beaten the best team in the world in the opening game and it's a big upset and everyone's talking about it. So I actually don't think that we played horrifically that game. I actually think there was just phases of the game that we didn't win and that they ended up being the reason that we, we came off with that loss. So that game, all things considered, you probably think, okay, we lost to Australia. Everyone was kind of expecting us to lose to Australia anyway, but we played pretty well. Next game, West Indies get 225. You personally bowl very, very well. I don't think you got hit off the square in that game. When you're chasing, though, the team loses a lot of wickets in the middle. Then you and Sophie Eccleston actually put on a very great partnership and almost steal the game. Do you want me to stop there and you could take it from there? What happened right at the end? Uh, I got run out at the non-striker's end backing up, which, you know what? It doesn't happen very often. I bet if you how many cricketers you've had on your podcast, I bet not many of them have been out that way. And I've been out twice like that in international cricket in the last six months. So I think that's the lesson for me to learn. Which as a bowler also, you know, you're not even batting that often. So you've done very yeah. well to manage that. Yeah, exactly. And it was the two times that I'd actually got myself into the 20s. So I think it was, you know, when I'm it was confidence boosting because when I'm going well, I feel like that's the only way I'm going to get out. So I can take it as a positive. But um, again, it was just a game where... I mean, I've not actually reflected on the World Cup like this. You know, I've not gone back game by game. This is so, therapy. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to see how I go. I might be crying in 10 minutes or I might be <laughs> ringing um, reception asking for some alcohol sent up. But again, it was it was moments of the game that we lost. So I dropped a catch off Hayley Matthews early, caught and bowled. In fact, we put DeAndre Dotting down first ball of the game. That was a catch that should have been taken off Catherine Brunt as well. You know, it just sets the tone for us. So we actually felt like, Again, I'll talk about this in the next game because it's going to be a pretty similar theme. But it was our fielding that really let us down. And those moments, in, in especially in 50-over cricket, you don't get them as often as you do in T20 cricket because there's not that much of an attack in nature or as much of an attack in nature, sorry, from when you play T20 cricket. But we just lost those moments and we shouldn't have been chasing 230 in the first place. We should have bowled the West Indies out for, you know, 180. I think it was Campbell and... I can't remember who else it was who put that partnership on, but they put a good 50, 60 part run partnership on in the middle overs and, and really dragged it back for the West Indies. And they'd had that great win, if you remember, against New Zealand in the in the mm. opening game. So they were on a high and they're a difficult team to stop when they're playing like that. So, so it's really cliche things to say. We lost wickets in partnerships and, and we left ourselves a bit too much to do at the end. But me and Soph, oh, we had such a great time. Like We don't often get to bat together when we really do enjoy batting together when we get the opportunity. And we just gradually were getting that scoreboard, you know, down and down and down. And then I actually said to her just before I got out, I said, this is the hard bit now, so because they'll bring the field up because we were quite, it was quite simple. We were able to milk singles and then they started bringing the field up when we needed less than 10. And that's when I got out, unfortunately. But again, it was just really gutting that we didn't get over the line. It was sometimes the, the gritty games that you win are the better games because, you know, you found a way of doing it and... Mm find a way of sneaking over the line. If we'd had won that game, we'd have still had the same conversation. You know, we'd have still said we can't lose wickets like that. We've got to find ways of breaking partnerships when one gets going. And we'd have still had the same conversations. And that's, I guess, the irony of cricket is you then you're talking about the margin, you know, the win and the loss, the two points from the World Cup points table is all that matters. But you're still actually having the same conversations in the dressing room at the end of the game anyway. You're none and two at this stage, but you've yeah. certainly been in both the games. 
You're now going into the South Africa game. You bat first, you make 235. South Africa lose regular wickets all the way through, except for a Wolfart who plays a brilliant innings. You took her though, so put that one in your pocket for a moment. <laughs> but it means that that kind of comes right down to the end of the game. Were they nine wickets down or eight wickets down at the end? I think they were eight wickets down. I think it was Shabnam and Cappy that saw them over the line in the end. Cappy might have got out. God, I can't remember. I mean, obviously we played them in the, the semi as well, but mm. yeah, again... It was our errors. We dropped Wolfie on 10. I dropped her again, caught and bowled, learning a lot about myself in this little interview. <laughs> yeah, so we dropped her a few times. And ju- again, you just can't give. Maybe 10 years ago you could, but in the standard of cricket that the women have got to now, you can't give people second chances because they're not going to give you a third and a fourth. It's The standard of cricket I felt in this tournament was the highest that it's been around the world for every team that played in the tournament. So that goes to show, obviously, the depth and the experience that the women's game is getting now which is great not great when you're on the losing end of it and you're having to deal with that but yeah it was again it was just our errors of not being able to close a game out and again we felt like we didn't bowl our best by our standards you know I think Anya had a good game she came back and got oh she got Lizelle early which is a huge wicket for us and then she got someone else early as well but that was really good for us to see because you could see that Anya had been a little bit low on confidence in the games previously and she's a big part of our team and we needed her to be bowling well. So, But again, it was just our own errors that let us down and that was that's you know almost more frustrating than someone's had a great game. You've got to take your hat off to them, which Cappy did actually. Cappy took a fiver and came in and, and took the bowling on when they needed probably more than one a ball at that stage and she, she got the rate right down. So she really did put us under pressure. And we just didn't have an answer for that. Well, our answer wasn't good enough. And, and obviously South Africa got over the line and you then suddenly see their confidence was creeping up as well. And they, you know, they really got on a roll in that tournament and became the team to beat by the end of it. You're none in three, but you've played three of the better teams. So there's no way you can't in your head think ahead. Well, when we start to play some of the more average teams, we're in all of these games. I remember when I was with Scotland and they were trying to qualify and uh, one of the TV commentators came over and said, why is Scotland playing so bad in this tournament? And then he stopped and he went, if you knew that, you'd probably work it out. Is there a part of you where you're just like, a few players were in bad form at the same time, you just lost a couple of crucial moments, but you didn't actually think you were playing that bad? Or at three down, are you just like, this is panic stations? Well, when we came off the pitch against South Africa, I didn't know that mathematically we could qualify at that point. So I thought, I came off that pitch thinking that that was it, the World Cup was over, we'd lost it. There's no way we could qualify. And then someone said in the dressing room, I can't remember who it was, but someone just said, there's still a way of doing it. We need things to go our way. And as soon as someone says that, you think, right, you've not got much of a chance. But we did obviously know at that point we had to start winning and we had no other option. We were playing a semi-final in the fourth game of the World Cup with three more games to play after that. So it was quite a crucial stage for us. But that was when we got to Mount Manganui as well. And we'd been on the road for a while at that stage. And I think this is actually a key point of our turnaround. We were in apartments and we got to cook our own food. And I know it sounds really simple and stupid, but we got the opportunity to just be normal humans without the COVID bubble for three or four days. And I think it really just gave us our energy back a little bit. And I think that was our turnaround point because I actually thought we were better in the South Africa game. I think of the three were probably, that was our better game. Certainly in the field, minus the drops, I think we had a lot more energy and, you know, we're generally just being a bit more attacking and being the England team that we've worked so hard on our field in and we've not been showing that in the previous two games. And I did think that showed in the South Africa game. But yeah, it obviously took a while for for me personally as well to get off that pitch and be like, 
right, you know, we're still alive in this tournament and we've got to keep going because there's no other option. But we've got to find a way to win now because it literally is do or die. It turns around quite quickly because the next game you bowl out India for, was it 134? I'm trying to find yes. my notes. I don't even know where I'm reading. 134. There it is. I've got it right. Um, Good memory. You run out deep D. They were 28 for three. I think they had another collapse later on. It's fair to say that you're rolling in the chase before you lost a cluster of wickets. Do you think that was just nerves again? Because 134, you know, you probably do that in your sleep in a normal game, right? Yeah, and we'd said as well, we know that we played really good cricket against India in the summer that we'd had in, in England. So we knew that we had the capability of beating that team. And obviously we we had the first half, which was brilliant. And I actually think it was our fielding that turned everything around. Dunks took a great catch at cover to get rid of Matali. I think it was. She took a good low-down catch. Obviously, we got the run out. We just were a better unit in the field. And I think that was what... I think that's a real measure of a team is how they're going is by how they're fielding. And I don't think we... The first three games probably measured us quite well. And I think the turnaround came around in that fourth game. But it was something that we'd consciously spoken about. And we said, if we can control that area of the game, then maybe that might pull the rest of it. You know, it might take a great diving stop and save four. And suddenly bowlers got a bit of confidence because they've saved the boundary, etc. So, yeah, we'd been pretty conscious about that. But I think, again, it's cliche, but when you're in the moments and you've got the momentum or you don't have the momentum, you either find ways to win or you find ways to lose. And it definitely felt like in that chase we were going to find a way to lose. When you look back at it, it wasn't actually that you know, we, I think we won by four wickets in the end. We yeah, still yeah. it wasn't close in like a traditional sense. Yeah, it felt closer than it was because if we were three from three and we'd won those first three games, that chase would have just been a bit of like, oh, okay, that's happened. You know, let's review it, but also let's not dwell on it. But the thing that we kept saying after that game was it doesn't matter. World Cup cricket is about winning or losing. It doesn't matter how many you win by, how many you lose by. It's about getting those two points on the board. And we obviously managed to get our first two, which was a massive relief for the dressing room. Next game was New Zealand. They made 203. You do okay. You got Bates, Devine, Martin. And then you go in with the bat, 192 for seven, needing 12 runs to win. Tell me about how you hit the winning runs. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, That's so mean. That was just unnecessary. I don't know why I did it, but it was fun. <laughs> I should have done. You know, a classic case of the starting spitting, Probably in any other circumstances, you might have come off. But no, we carried on playing. Frankie Mackay's bowling. She's skidding it through. Classic off-spinner's dismissal. Crossy goes back to a ball that she shouldn't have done because it's skidding. So I've learnt my lesson again. But I've spoken a little bit about this, about how in the game against the West Indies, Anya was really disappointed with how she she was the last wicket to fall. And she I think she took a lot of the blame for that, which obviously is not the number 11's fault whatsoever when you're chasing 220 whatever it was in that game but I think she just had this like real steely determination about her that she was going to get us over the line that day and honestly it was the worst 15 minutes I've ever experienced in my life because you can't impact the game anymore you're out you're done you've bowled so you can't help one wicket means that you're out of the world cup 12 runs weren't going to come quickly because you didn't have the luxury of having wickets behind you to be able to hit over the top and spread the field. And so you just knew that it was going to be like the grittiest 12 runs that we needed. And it was awful. I felt physically sick. I thought I was going to be sick. I thought I was going to have to leave. We were outside in that area where everyone's huddled over with the coats on because it was raining. And it was, yeah, it was just horrendous. I thought you're just going to have to ride this wave because it's not going to happen quickly. Like we could lose quickly, but we weren't going to win quickly. So... But hats off to Anya. I mean, she did so well in that circumstances. And especially batting with Charlie Dean as well. You know, Charlie's new to international cricket and 
I don't know what was getting said out there, but Anya obviously was the one that kind of took the ball by the horns and got us over the line. Again, the relief that we got from getting those two points. And we kind of said similar things, you know, it does matter how we got to that real crunch part of the game, but what mattered more was that we got our two points and, and we were still alive in the tournament, which at that point was all that we really cared about. I think one of the most incredible things for me is that obviously Anya is known for what she did in the World Cup final, but... I think did she hit the boundary in the semi-final that got you guys through to the 2017 World Cup final. Yeah. In this game, she saved England again. I can't think of another number 11 who has been involved in a team being so important over two different World Cups because generally number 11s don't even bat that much at World Cups. Well, Anya didn't bat 11 in that semi-final because oh, Alex Hartley was in the team. No, so we I think we were... Oh, we, were, point, we were probably yeah. seven or eight down in that semi-final, but maybe that goes to show how much confidence was held in Alex Hartley that everyone was celebrating so much when Anya hit the winning runs. But it was a very tense semi. I remember I went and watched that. It was at Bristol, wasn't it? It was a great game. Yeah. Yeah, it's just incredible that, yeah, you know, you're right. I forgot when Alex is playing, obviously everyone is automatically pushed up a spot at the end there. <laughs> so you're two from three now, three very tough games at the start. India and New Zealand are very good teams. It, I mean, New Zealand ended up having a very lackluster tournament for them. But in some ways, they kind of had a similar tournament to you lot in that it was a bit up and down and, and no one quite knew what was going to happen. But you've now beaten those two teams. You come in off the back and suddenly it's like the drawer opens up for you. Did you realize that the last two games were against Bangladesh and Pakistan coming in? Like, is that something, how far ahead do you look? I know some players do and other players sort of notice who the next team is. Yeah, I looked. I looked to see kind of what our order was and, and who we were playing and more where we were playing as well because in my head I was like, well, we'll get to the semi, so where's the game before that, right? We're travelling here and here. So we did know and we, when you've lost three games, you look ahead to see who you've got to play and who's next. But we obviously we knew that it was just must-win cricket. It didn't really matter who we played against. We just had to find a way of winning both those games. So, yeah, I think... It was more of a relief that we'd found ways to win. Like I said, we'd almost found ways to lose the first three games and then it definitely felt like something had changed in our energy and our, not so much the language that we used in the dressing room, but it, it definitely just felt like there was a change of atmosphere and that belief was starting to build again that, you know, we can make it through to the semi-final. And once we get there, then it is, you know, we're almost in a better position because we played knockout cricket pretty much from game four. So, yeah, I, I had looked um, and I was aware of who we were playing, but it wasn't necessarily the opposition I was more worried about it was just again the result finding a way of getting those two points and obviously Pakistan had I think they played some pretty good cricket throughout this tournament but you guys uh, rolled them for 105 and chased them easily after everything you've been through if nothing else just having a game that wasn't tense must have been a different experience Completely, yeah. And that was something that I really wasn't prepared for going into the World Cup because you do all the fitness, you do all your bowling workloads and, you know, you practice your Yorkers and everything. You do all the physical stuff, but no one told me or gave me an indication how mentally draining it would be and how emotionally draining it would be. Because when you, like I said, that 15 minutes of that New Zealand game was just awful. And it took me a while to recover from that. And it was a night game as well. So you get back to the hotel late, you don't sleep very well, you then travel the next day and you don't really get time to process the games properly. And they really did drain us. Again, that the turnaround that I spoke about earlier, when we were in Mount Manganui, we had two games there. And it was the first time that we'd got the opportunity to sleep in the same bed for more than three nights in a row, which again, helped us because we were just a bit more settled there. But yeah, it was just the emotional roller coaster of it all. And the just, you can't really 
prep for that either. It's just something that you have to ride while you're doing it and learn as you go. And there's no easy way of doing it either. Sport is emotional, especially when you're playing at that level. It's emotional at any level because everyone knows what cricket can be like. But yeah, that was just a bit I wasn't prepared for whatsoever. Also, like if you're a male cricketer, by the time you get to a World Cup, especially in this era, you've probably played a lot of different franchise cricket coming in, which means you are used to playing a game, finishing at like 11 o'clock at night, 5am the next morning, you've got to get a flight. So you then have to decide whether you want to sleep between two and four in the morning before you go out and get the flight, all those sorts of things. If you haven't played in the World Cup, you probably, for you personally, that's a whole different world of cricket than playing in an Ashes is far more genteel and, you know, playing in a bilateral series generally. And everyone's traveling at the same, you might even be traveling on the plane with the other team and everything. Suddenly everyone's got these random schedules. Is that something that looking back on you would have liked to have planned a little bit more? I mean, it's interesting that you said you were already looking at the schedule beforehand, but is that something you would have liked to plan a little bit ahead of? I don't think you can because obviously you're given your schedule and there's not much that you can you can do with that. You've got to be on those planes and travel. The only thing that is, the, I guess, the bigger difference between playing one team in a series and playing a World Cup is that you obviously have to do your preparation for every single game in a World Cup. Once you've done your opposition analysis in an Ashes, you know who you're playing against in the next game and then the next game. So you have to have all these meetings to make sure you've ticked every single box. And then at training, you're trying to get someone on the Wango bowling, Megan shut in swingers and making sure you've covered that off or, you know, Jess Jonathan left out, whatever it might be. So there's just so much that goes into it that I think, like I said, I just probably didn't take all that into consideration going into the whole tournament, really, which I definitely think will stand me in better stead if I make the 2025 World Cup because you've just got that experience and it won't be as novel for me. And also, I think like, you were saying men would have played a lot of franchise cricket, but they would also probably just have played a lot of cricket. Like I was going yeah. into that World Cup with 35 caps under my belt, something like that. So it's not actually a lot of cricket. When you think how many games Owen Morgan's played going into that World Cup final, it's closer to 200, I think. So it, that's the, you know the stark reality of where our game is at the minute, but that will get better. And that was obviously just for me as well. Brunty has played close to 200 games, so she'll <laughs> shout at me if I don't mention it. Yeah, she's not the perfect example. But yeah. even so, like it goes back to you talk about how many internationals he's played, but he's also played all those list A games. It's just the accumulation yeah. of being in those situations. The associate cricketers talk about the same sort of thing of everything's a big moment for them because they don't play that many other uh, moments, whereas the men from the major you know, eight or ten countries, they're used to it. I know the 100 was different. You captained in the 100. Is that? Yeah. Is that, yeah. I know the 100's different because you're not flying. It's a little bit easier on the A1 and the M1 than it is, you know, having to check in and everything. Was it handy going through a tournament like that just before the World Cup or is it so different it doesn't really matter? Yeah, it is so different. And there's the comfort of being in your own country as well. And just little things like, you know, the services you're going to stop at and you know what food you're going to be able to eat and you can go home and have a night in your own bed and stuff. It doesn't feel as much of a treadmill when you're in England. And that's obviously with a bit of COVID restrictions as well. We were still bubbled in New Zealand for this World Cup and that was definitely starting to take its toll on us as well. So I think we're past the point of being able to blame COVID now. I think we're all used to it <laughs> enough, but it's it's still not a pleasant environment to be in. It's hard to get away from cricket, especially when it's not going well. So yeah, I think that's why I think I attribute the turnaround to Mount Manganui so much because it was such an important part of the tournament for us. All right. So you've now got three wins on the trot. So three from three. I'm assuming that in many ways, the vibes are immaculate at this point, because it's like, it's not that it doesn't matter, but once you've won three must-win games in a row, 
if it comes to the last one, anything could sort of happen. But you must feel like you're on a bit of a roll going into the game against Bangladesh. Yeah, again, it's confidence. It's, again, finding ways of winning. Brunty took some wickets in that Pakistan game and got herself, you know, she she really needed that game and it felt like a bit of a weight off her shoulders when she came off the pitch as well. She bowled really well. And I think we actually had moments like that throughout the tournament. Jonesy had a, a great partnership in the South Africa game, getting us up to that 2.30, whatever it was. So there was moments from everyone where they all stuck the hand up. But I think at that point for us, if we lost that game... I think I would have been more devastated because we had the hope. You're one game away from a semi-final now. When you're four games away from a semi-final, it's, it feels like a very long way, especially when you've got to win all those games. But when you've just got one must-win game left, you know, we just said to ourselves, we want to leave everything out there. Don't come off this pitch thinking, what if? Make sure that we go and do a really clinical job and find a way of winning this game of cricket again. And that was the first time that we actually were able to just go... Like just take a breath just for a second. And it was hard at that point actually to look back and think, you know, you've achieved something here being able to get to a semi-final because we then thought, right, we've actually got to the position that we wanted to be in from game two or game three, whatever it might have been. So I don't mean that, that we would have qualified from game two or three, but we left ourselves a lot to do at the back end of the mm. tournament. So it was definitely the first time that we were able to just kind of take a breath. And even though it didn't feel like as much of an achievement because we'd messed it up so much at the beginning, we, you know, we did enjoy the fact that we'd, we'd made a semi-final because it's a special place to be it's like not many teams obviously get to get to play in a, a world cup semi-final so yeah it was still something to celebrate a semi-final against south africa that was the danny white game if i remember correctly almost made 300 and then after all those tight games i mean it was a weird tournament because there were so many tight games it's sort of something you should see in a t20 tournament not a one-day tournament that many games and then suddenly you get to the semi-final and sophie eccleston just absolutely destroys south africa when you're playing in that semi-final, it's quite clear early on in that second innings that you're probably going through. What kind of feeling is it to be out on the field knowing that you're going to a World Cup final, especially for you in your first tournament? Yeah, it's crazy. I was actually really more fixated and pleased for Sophie that game because it was the first fiver that she'd taken in an England shirt. She took, did you take six or seven? Yeah, she took six for in the yeah. end. You know, when she's bowling like that, and she's on a roll. She's great to be on the pitch with because she just flies off. She's like, you know, she's just celebrating off and, and you've, someone's got to stop her. Someone's got to be the barrier that stops her so that we can get in and huddle with her. But um, yeah, obviously, I, I mean, I actually remember speaking to Lizelle and Mignon after the game and I said, like, it might be a stupid question, but I hope you're both okay. Like, you know, how are you feeling? And they said, oh, we got absolutely dicked when they lost the semi-final in Bristol, the, what, the game we spoke about earlier when Anya hit the winning runs. They said that took so long to get over because they lost by... A, such a small margin that yeah. for months they're going, what if I'd just done that? What if I'd just done this? And Lazelle said to me after the semi-final in New Zealand, she said, you know, what if I'd just saved 100 runs in the field? You know, she <laughs> said, I, I don't need to think like that. It was almost, for them, they could just say, well, we got beat by the better team on the day, which I think was was nice for them. But equally for us, again, that emotion wasn't there. The You know, the draining nature of taking it down to the last ball wasn't there either, which I think we needed because we were just all emotional wrecks at that stage. But yeah, to be able to say you were going to a World Cup final is pretty special. I remember my dad, so dad's played in an FA Cup final and he always said that his goal was to play in the final, not to win it, but to play in the final because only obviously one team gets to win something like that. So make sure you enjoy the occasion and whatnot. So that was our best cricket as well. That was comfortably our best game. Danny set it up and, and Sophie finished it off. So it was nice to have those milestones to celebrate in the dressing room as well. You'd lost to South Africa earlier on in the tournament, but 
it was a close game. You lost to Australia early on in the tournament. It's a close game. You know Australia feels like you two are playing each other every 12 minutes, as much as women's cricket is ever allowed to be played that often. You know the other team really well. It's not a case of having to do loads and loads of preparation, right? Is it a case of trying to maintain the feeling of confidence going into that game? I mean, we were so high on confidence from that game and we knew if we produced something like that again, then we could seriously challenge Australia. I mean, we knew we had to have a very special game to beat them and we probably knew that they needed to have a bit of an off day for us to beat them as well. And unfortunately, that just didn't happen. I remember I tried not to think about it as much as possible and I actually slept quite well the night before, which surprised me. But, you know, you're running through all the scenarios, like we'll get 250, they'll get 250, we lose a couple of wickets early. You know, you're going through all these scenarios, but not once... Did I envisage that we would go for 360 in a World Cup final? Like It did not cross my mind whatsoever. And that was just obviously testament to how Healy batted. She was pretty unstoppable. It took me a few days, but I watched my spell back. And, you know, there's balls that I'm bowling leg stump Yorkers that are this far outside the leg stump because she shimmied across and she's hitting me over cover. And you just, some days you've got to go, you know what, it's not my date, it's her day. So... In terms of the prep, sorry, I've gone completely off piece there. Um, At that stage of the tournament, it's about getting yourself into a position where you are confident going into that game to be able to deliver your skills. So I remember I practiced some round the wicket Yorkers the day before, had a tiny little ball, but otherwise I just wanted to make sure I was fresh and and ready and excited and and comfortable. And obviously we played the semi-final at Christchurch at the Hagley Oval, so we felt like we had a tiny bit of advantage because we played on the ground under lights as well so we'd kind of done our prep in the semi-final I guess we didn't have to do the fielding under lights and get used to the conditions as much so there was a bit of pressure off us on the day before which was was quite nice because everyone could just kind of take it all in and, and try and enjoy it as much as possible. When Healy goes nuts and they make 360 what's the conversation like about in the chat? I know your job most of your job's probably done at that point but because you have to talk yourself up. It's a bit like talking about before, were you confident before you went over? Of course, otherwise we wouldn't go out there. It's exactly the same. Yeah. You still have to go out there. You still think that, I mean, there's some incredibly talented players, as was proven in yeah. the second innings. Is it more about talking yourselves up? I think tactics are probably almost not that important at that point. Yeah, I think actually at half time we were probably the most confident we were in that run chase because, again, you're thinking if Danny White goes out and blitzes 100 here or... Tammy gets her 100 or Siva produces something that she did, which she actually told me she was going to do because she dropped Healy. I think it was my second or third over. She dropped her on 40 and then she came up to me and apologised at, at the lunch break and said, I'm going to have to go out and get 150 now and make up for it. And she was 148, not out. And I'm convinced, genuinely convinced that she could still be batting now if someone mm. had stayed with her because she just didn't look like she was going to get out. But yeah, I think at that halfway point, you're just thinking, Dan, go and do what you've done in the semi-final, go and get us off to a great start. But I thought what Australia did really well was they took Danny's strength away from her, from the ball one. They didn't even give her the chance to get going. Megan came round the wicket and bowled at Danny's pads and just didn't give her any opportunity to score through cover. So, And that was something we'd not seen before. We weren't expecting that either. And, and to try and combat that in a World Cup final is obviously a big ask. And it didn't happen that day. But I actually, at half time, I thought 320 was par. It was such a good pitch. It was so hard to bowl and there was no spin. There was no like nothing off the pitch from me. So I thought, you know, they're only actually 40 over what I think is par here. So a couple of good partnerships. And I do actually think we're only one good partnership away from winning that game. If someone, Like I said, if someone stayed with Nat out there, then it could have been a similar game to what we saw up in Hamilton in that first game where it went down to the last over. 
I mean, when I think about like team performance, I was, I've been involved in some of the ones that are the most frustrating is when one player does really well and you know that you only need one other player. Like no one else passed 30, I think, if yeah. my notes are correct. I don't know why I keep pretending like I haven't written all this down, but was there a sense of frustration that like, because you had so many good games in a row coming in, you know, five games in a row where back against the wall again and again and again, you're back against the wall here and then you only need probably one other player to even just keep up and in. She was batting so well, you know, she yeah. might have been able to chase them on her own. Was that a frustration when the game finishes, especially for the tail who just would have been able to hang out with her a little bit longer? Yeah, there's always going to be frustrations when you lose a big game like that. And even myself, I'm thinking, what more could I have done to help support Nat or to have even scored 20 more runs myself and maybe got us into a different position? But I just don't think you can think about sport in that way. Obviously, we I think that's where our learnings are going to be so important now moving forward. Like, what can we learn from that game? Well, actually, it's only one partnership. How do we create that partnership? What can we do to support a Nat or a Heather or whoever it is in that situation that's scoring like that? And that's where we're probably inexperienced as a team. I say that, obviously, I know we have got a lot of experience, but those finals, chasing 360, we've not played many games like that. We've not played many games of cricket where we've had to try and chase 360. It doesn't really happen that often for us. So in a way, it was a bit of a first in the game. And I think you just can't ignore the learnings, basically. We've got to come away and make sure that we don't hide away from that fact. And again, you've got to look at it like Australia had lost one game in the five years since the last one game to India, wasn't it? And for them to lose that game, it would have been an absolute travesty. You know, their Netflix documentary that I keep joking about that would have got made if we'd won it, their Netflix documentary would have been the worst ending possible because they had the fairy tale story. We had the fairy tale tournament or could have had the fairy tale tournament, but they had the five year build up that went into the whole mm. qualifications and, and the way that they built their team. So I'm not saying that that means that they deserve to win or whatever, but you know, it would have been a very surprising, I think, victory if we'd have won it. If that's the case, let's just say they played the West Indies in the semi final and somehow they lost that semi final. You lose to the West Indies. Is that a different kind of loss or is that it just doesn't matter in a World Cup final? If you lose, you lose. Yeah, I think it's just World Cup cricket is, like I said, I think you almost take the opposition out of it and you just, you've got to try and see it as black and white as you can. And again, how do you just find ways of getting your two points or getting yourself through to the final or whatever it might be? You've, you've got to find ways of doing it. And we didn't find a way in that final, which was gutting actually, because obviously we then came off the pitch and Anya tells us that that's her last game of cricket for England. So on top of losing a World Cup, you've got one of your teammates that you've played with for best part of 10 years is telling you that that's her career done. So it was, there was a lot of tears that day. And then really strangely, we all disappear off and have four weeks away from each other when we've lived in each other's pockets for three months. So there was just a lot to deal with emotionally, physically. Um, it was quite a hard couple of weeks, actually, because then you come home, you've got the jet lag to deal with. And yeah, a lot of things went into a pot that made it quite difficult. But I want to talk about those couple of weeks. Let's just stay there for a second. So okay. I've covered a bunch of World Cups now. And I have to travel and I go in and out. And when I finished the last day, when I used to work for Crick Info, the day after the World Cup final, Crick Info always used to ask me for another piece. And I always used to tell them that my laptop had died. So sorry if the editors are now working out that I did that <laughs> four tournaments in a row. And the reason was once the World Cup final is gone and I've sent my last piece, literally I can barely move. I can barely think. In my mind, I'm just like, I have to get to the airport and get home and, you know, hopefully not get lost on the way home. Because of the roller coaster of this England side, because of the fact you haven't done this very much, and for you particularly, it's a big thing. What is that 
week, week and a half like? when you, I know you can't really escape cricket in your particular house, but, you know, what is it like to go back into that sort of void after a tournament like that, after one of the moments of your life, really? Well, I spoke about this on my podcast and I actually got a bit of the mick taken out of me because I said I had to be a normal human again for the first time in three months. And by that I meant, and it sounds really like, oh, woe is me and and sorry that you've got an incredible life where you're traveling around. But you get so used to your routine on tour of, you know, breakfast is at this time, you get your laundry into a room and it gets delivered back to your room. And honestly, it's, it's brilliant, it is. But you get so used to that routine that then when you come back to your normal life routine, my non-cricket routine, you're a bit like, oh gosh, I've forgotten how to make my scrambled eggs. I've forgotten, you know, how to just be, like I said, I said well, normal is probably the wrong word to use, but routine just flips on its head. And I think the thing that people don't realise is, and I fall into this as well when I watch the men's team or when I watch other teams, like the 100 or the Big Bash or the IPL is probably a good example, but you watch a game of cricket every day. So if you're watching, let's say, Melbourne Stars are playing, you're watching them play. You don't think about the Melbourne Stars again until they play again on the TV and you see them again. You don't think about the travel that they've had to do, the training that they've had to do, your COVID bubble that they're in. You don't think about those three days where they're not playing. But obviously, as the cricketer yourself, that's all you're living. You're only experiencing that bit. But for the spectator, they're just seeing the bits on TV and right, they're at another cricket game and they're playing and they're producing and or not producing, whatever it might be. And I think that's what I was trying to get across when I was talking about it on my podcast, because you do, you hit this, we call it post-tour blues, but it's just your purpose and your motivation is just gone. Because for four years of my life or five years of my life, I'm thinking about a World Cup and how to get to a World Cup final, and how to win a World Cup. And then you play in the World Cup final and then the next day, what do you do? Why do I get out of bed today? Because I've not got to go to training and I don't have to think about a World Cup final. And I find it really difficult, I do, but I've got better at talking about it and letting people know when I'm struggling and, yeah, but again, it's part and parcel, I think, of the job that we do and and something that we have to find a way of coping with. And it doesn't get easier the more you do it. You know, everyone says, oh, you must be so used to touring life and living in hotels. And you you obviously do get used to it, but it doesn't make it easier. It doesn't mean it's easy to be away from home and your family for three months and the time difference that we spoke about earlier is not easy. So, yeah, it's. I don't want to be woe is me. I do have a brilliant life. I love playing cricket for a living. But there's also that, those bits that I think do certainly get overlooked. And you've obviously experienced it as a journalist yourself and been in those tournaments. And it's just draining, isn't it? It takes, like, it's just your purpose for two or three weeks or months, whatever it is. And, and then it suddenly goes. Yeah. My other thing was that when I came back, it would take me about a week and a half to get over the tournament. But then I needed to know that I had another tour coming up. Having COVID has completely changed everything because I haven't traveled at all for ages and I yeah. can just cover things from home. But that was a big thing. I would then, I, I need another trip in four months. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, I don't have it. For athletes, I remember Trent Woodhill, you know, Melbourne Stars coach and everywhere coach. I think he's coached every team in the world at this point. But he said to me once that winning or losing doesn't really matter because it affects how drunk you get or the <laughs> way that you drink. You have this big high or this big low, but then you go about the next game. How quickly after the World Cup and after you get past coming back to normal life, is it just about I need to now prepare for the next game? So I woke up from the day after the World Cup final. I watched my spell back, spoke to family and had another little cry. And then I remember that was the part where I was like, I'm right, 2025, I want to be the team that lifts that trophy. I want to be part of that team. So that happened quite quickly. I didn't think that had happened quickly. But it was probably 10 days after I landed. We actually flew a few. Our flight got cancelled after the, just 
add insult to injury. Our flight got cancelled, so I had to stay an extra day. And I didn't exercise for 10 whole days, which is not like me. You know, normally two or three days and I need to get out and do something more for my mental health than anything. So it took me 10 days to even consider exercising. And I remember going on this run and going, right, that's your first step to the journey for the next World Cup. So I've started my process now for this 2025 World Cup which probably might be a bit premature. I don't know when he's asking me whether I was knowing if we've got Pakistan or Bangladesh next and I wasn't sure. Thinking about 2025 can be quite daunting. But I just thought you've got an opportunity now to almost do the process again. A bit like what you said, you're looking for your next tour or your next thing to play in. But obviously in between all of that, we've got a busy summer. We've got a test match to play. We've got the 100, the Commonwealth. We've got India coming over. It's going to be a, a great, another great summer for us. So I think you do you just chase you chase the highs, don't you? That's what you do as a professional sports person. I think you're constantly looking for the highs and unfortunately you've got to deal with the lows as you go along because you can't have those highs all the time. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me and reminding me and taking me it's just like a little journey actually. It's reminded me of a lot of things that I'd forgotten about. So thank you very much. It's all right, I'll send you a check for the therapy <laughs> session later. <laughs> Thank you for listening. There is more information on my guests in the show notes. Please support them where you can, but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share, or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. Makunja Benredi is in charge of our video side. Orijoti Senpathy turns the files into video podcasts, and Shivanka Patacharya makes our graphics. Our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets.